Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Who. Hey, yo, I should have met L. We get that. And he's like, yo, I stole that shit. You got a fucking problem? <laughs> and like, word. That and more. But before that, I just need to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon members, Kasha La and Mary. We always give a shout out to folks who give $25 or more per month. And I'll tell you, it means so, so very much to us right now. The support of people who love and believe in what we do. This is a really, really, you know, scary time for us. Uh, it's always been difficult to keep everything flowing here, and we are absolutely doing our best. We are so thrilled that we're going to be doing our second live-streamed show on Friday, April 10th at 10 p.m. New York time, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific time. As always, go to risk-show.com slash tour for tickets. That's just an example of how we are adapting because we believe so dearly in what we have to offer here. You know, Risk, I always say that these are stories about people transcending things, extraordinary experiences in people's lives that inspire us, that give us hope because they found the wherewithal to make it through. And you know, there's real, genuine, valuable human connection that happens in our live streams now and even just when you're listening to the podcast like this. Right now, we're remembering that the most important thing we have in life is each other. And this show is a place where we can share each other <laughs> with each other. Not to mention that the show can be such an escape sometimes. It can be absolutely hilarious and it can be really really sweet and beautiful now on last week's show we played uh four stories that had previously just been patreon bonus stories to give you a taste of the fact that you know we put up a new patreon bonus story every week like this week this lovely story by david pattison setting ourselves on fire Actually, I really did that. I'm the only one that did that, but it was my brother James who's kind enough to put me out with his tennis shoe. <laughs> and later this week, we're going to be uploading a new interview with one of everyone's favorite risk storytellers, Ray Christian. That is all at patreon.com slash risk. Uh, if you're not a member, become a member. If you're already a member, maybe think whether or not you might be able to afford increasing the amount that you donate per month. Another perk is that as a Patreon member, you have free access to all of our live stream shows, like the one coming up on Friday. So once again, that's at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. Folks, there are things we each look back on and think... How did I get it so wrong? Might have been wearing multiple polo shirts and popping up all the collars or 
dating that one person that one time. <laughs> we always are going to be getting something wrong. That's just life. But there are also things we can get right on the very first try, like shopping for life insurance. That's where Policy Genius comes in. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more per year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape for free. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. So, even if you look back on your triple denim days <laughs> in distress, you'll never be distressed about life insurance with Policy Genius. In just a few minutes, you can find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. We'll always get things wrong from time to time. At least we can get life insurance right with Policy Genius. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Prison cold in ancient nights, you so. You the cold maze, say one prison cold in ancient nights, you so. All right. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Adriano Celetano. This is a song that was recorded, I don't know, 1972 or something like that. This Italian guy wanted to create an American song, a song that sounded like an American song. So he made up fake English for the whole song, and it, it's quite a trip. 
And do you know what else is going to be quite a trip? The second Risk live stream show is happening on Friday, April 10th at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. That's 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you go to risk-show.com slash tour, uh, that's where you can get your tickets. Now, by the time you're hearing this, the window will have closed for us giving away free tickets to folks who, uh, who are in financial duress. But if you pay attention to our Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, all of those were at Risk Show. We'll look for alerts for the next one, and you can get in on that. If you're a patron of ours at Patreon, you automatically can get a free entrance to the show there. And it's a hell of a cast. It's the cast that was going to be doing the Risk live show in L.A. Uh, Jana Fisher, Don Fraser, uh, Jonathan Bradley Welch, David Crabb. And I'll be hosting. Folks, I cannot tell you how inspiring and just moving the first one of these was. We had somewhere like 500 or so people there. And it was just, it, it was the most hopeful thing that I've experienced in these past few weeks. So definitely make a point of coming to the next Risk live stream. These are just going to be so much fun. Now, we are calling this week's episode Healing, because I think the energy of healing, the energy that goes into processing, accepting, leaving room for new insight, and taking positive steps toward change, I think that that it's very much on... All of our minds, I, I wrote this same thing on Facebook just now to my friends over there. Um, I try not to get too Taoist with people most of the time <laughs> because most people don't know what that is, but these are strange times. So about three or four times a year, I throw the I Ching coins to consult this ancient book that Confucius and lots of other sages have interpreted and meditated on over many centuries. The way it works is you throw a few coins and you throw them six times. And depending on how they land, they'll point you to one of 64 hexagrams with meditations that are associated with each hexagram. And the hexagrams are all about the changes you might be going through at that point in your life. So I'm used to throwing the coins and getting a hexagram that's kind of gloomy, you know, about facing obstacles or dealing with loss or being stuck in a rut. So I threw the I Ching a couple days ago, and at first I was very confused that this time... I got the most positive-sounding hexagram I've ever gotten. It was number 40, which in English is known as deliverance, release, and liberation. <laughs> well, at first I thought, the hell's wrong with these coins? <laughs> did, did they get warped in the sun over time or something? But then I started reading various 
old sage's interpretations of this hexagram. And here is what I got out of it as best I could interpret. That it means that right now your world is currently in such a state of tumult and flux almost as if the ground is shifting beneath your feet like in an earthquake, that now is the ideal time to rediscover what you value, what you love, what you believe in. Now that so much is changing, you might look with a fresh perspective for what is most essential and stay grounded in that. I think this hexagram suggests this is a blessed opportunity, a window of opportunity here, an opportunity to start letting go of so many of the neurotic habits of mind or addictive behaviors or just wastes of time and energy that might have become too well-worn during more ordinary times. You know, and the more you're able to let go of that stuff, the more this just might be a transitional period for you into a more liberated state of being. There's this Italian philosopher that I love named Daniele Bellelli. (laughs) Very funny name. But he once said, you don't have to be a Taoist to be a Taoist. And what he meant by that was, Where this wisdom comes from might seem strange and foreign or even woo-woo to you, but the wisdom is good for all. So I thought I would share that here. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear a story from David Who from the last time that Risk appeared in a theater... (laughs) in front of a live audience in New York City. But before that, we're going to hear a story from David Crabb, a story that he shared in Los Angeles. And David will be sharing a sort of sequel to the story that you're about to hear at the Risk live stream that's happening on Friday, April 10th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Here's David now with a story we call Ghost World. Before the, the last story, I want to tell the story because, like I said, I feel like there have been so many interesting themes that really made me uh, think about some of my own shit, as we say in L.A. Um, earlier uh, last year, I was in a, a very low place in my life. Now, before I get into it, I should tell you that um, my mother, uh, Jerry, she's a tiny little uh, woman from Newfoundland uh, who lived in San Antonio, Texas. She took me to every kind of metaphysical, spiritual... Like, by the time I was nine, I'd been to three different metaphysical weekend workshops in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, by the time I was in seventh grade, I'd read Shirley MacLaine's Out on a Limb twice. I would sit in the bathtub and literally try to astral project, okay? So I had a mother who brought me 
Swami, like all of these very interesting, very different sort of uh, outlooks on spirituality. But I myself, I've never been a really spiritual person. And for the last 10 years, if I'm honest, I feel like if I have a church, it's probably storytelling. And that might sound really cheesy, but I have been able to tell stories, host storytelling, teach storytelling, and I feel like it is the literal way that you can figure out your shit. I have seen it happen. I've had it happen for me. It's the way you structure your experience. You figure out how it works. And it, it, is, it is therapy for me. It is a kind of like therapeutic, almost spiritual process. And in the early part of last year, I found myself in a place where nothing was working to lift me out of the place that I was in. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of faith in anything uh, connected to a religion or a spiritual belief, and I didn't know how to tell stories about the place I was at, and that was really for the first time in my life. My husband and I uh, had recently been evicted from our home. We had signed a two-year lease on a beautiful house with trees in the backyard, and three months into living there, we found out that uh, the house was going to be sold, and we were going to have nowhere to live, so we were finding ourselves constantly fighting with these people over money, And during all of that, our little dog, Charlie, who was like our third family member, had been diagnosed uh, with a pretty uh, possibly terminal brain tumor cancer. And I don't know how many of you have pets, and it's always hard, I think, to explain your love for your animal, but we went all in on his care. We found the credit card at the bottom of the dresser that had the 29% APR, (laughs) and we just said, whatever you have to do. Um, And we didn't fight the vets. Um, What he had seemed really treatable. He was like a good scenario, but it would cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And at the end of really, really trying to save his life, we got him back and it worked for what was hopefully going to be a few years. And a month after that, he just had a seizure that never stopped and we had to let him go. Um... When we had to move out of our house, we had a month where we didn't have anywhere to live until we had our next house available. So we were very like dependent on the kindness of strangers. Uh, We spent May um, just driving around with like a car full of stuff, including Charlie's ashes and this little ceramic thing with his collar around it. And we would just go and couch surf if uh, any of our lovely, wonderful friends that cared about us needed plant watering or dog sitting, or even if they were home and had a spare room, we were just like living with them. And I was just in a really, really bad place. And the The first place that we landed at our multi-venue homeless tour was in a tiny apartment right across the street from the giant blue Scientology dormitory building. Um, Now, uh, I've lived in L.A. long enough. I get it. And if anyone here is a Scientologist, I just want to say sorry for everything about to happen. Um, So... Now, uh, we've all had these experiences. We've walked down the streets. We've been handed the pamphlets. We've all seen the movies. We've seen Going Clear. Even if uh, uh, we we don't live in L.A., we're not familiar, we've seen the big blue building, which is essentially like a dormitory for new, you know, wet-behind-the-ears green Scientologists to go and live in before they learn whatever they learn. Now, the interesting thing about living across from the Scientology building is that it allowed me hours on end to watch them. You know, because typically we see Scientologists from a distance or in the wild, you know, on Vermont with flyers, you know? And it was weird to be able to watch them. Um, you know, they all wear those terribly dated, like, red lobster waiter suits. Um, you know, the really, you know, synthetic, flammable pants that you can, like, hear them. You know, the kind of vest with the silky back that, like, when you're in eighth grade and go to a wedding, your mom rents you. Do you know what I mean? Like, how much money do they have if this is how these people have to dress is my question. Um, and, you know, when you watch the front of the building, it's like a lot of uh, busy work. Like, they all have their little waiter suits they all have like those little uh, things of keys with like the plastic things on their wrists right and they help walkie talkies i'm coming right there rebecca like they're putting out fires and doing shit right like things are happening some some of them have 
like a, like a notebook, right? And they're pointing at things, and another one is writing down notes going, oh, yeah, exactly, Tom, right? Like, it is fucking made up. Um, it is, it's crazy because when you watch them and you can really watch them without walking down that street, you start to see the loop. You start to see that it is, they're like extras in a movie with no lead. Do you know what I mean? It's like peas and carrots, peas and carrots, that's what I thought, peas and carrots, you know what I mean? Like they are just going through some weird motion that actually makes me feel like, does anyone live in the building? Like is it just these 30 people, right? And it was weird to be able to watch them and have so many of my suspicions about them validated by it, but also to be feel like, oh my God, right now, I would kill to be one of them. Um, <laughs> watching that at such a low, depressed, and broken place, I was like, man, that would be nice to be on a schedule. Do you know what I mean? Just to be told, like, David, I'm so sorry that you're grieving, but at two o'clock, you've got to fill out some pamphlets. At three, you've got to do the back and forth track in front of the building. At four o'clock, you have to watch a video about Tom Cruise. And from, and from five o'clock to midnight, you're going to hold the metal Campbell soup cans and answer all the questions. Do you know what I mean, because I was kind of like, give me a schedule, I hurt, you know, um, and, and as I was watching them, like, you know, I was living in this house that wasn't mine, and I just felt like totally unrooted. Um, I was a freelance worker, and I had sort of not taken any work to care for my dog the last few months of his life. My husband had to work nonstop at the restaurant he was at, so it was very, like, lonely there. We were grieving in our own way. And I had taken to weird things, you know. Um, looking at doorways, I would stare at for a very long time and think if I stare at that little corner, like, Charlie's gonna come around the corner, which I know sounds so crazy, but I kept, like, projecting him places. And I think part of it was expanded by the way that we lost him was so drawn out and painful and expensive and heartbreaking and my husband knew that I was hurting and <clears throat> he told me he said look babe I think you need to go talk to someone right you need to go share this now when they had sent us Charlie's remains home it, it came with this letter that said you know from the company that um, does the cremains they said if you need a therapist you can call this number so I called the number and a woman was like yes so here's what we do you can have a hour one-on-one -on -one conversation with this woman she's a therapist she deals with pet loss grief or you can go to three three-hour in-person meetings. They happen every two weeks at a private home that she will be at uh, in Venice. And I was like, I want the Venice in person, right? Because I knew I needed people. Like, I would go for days without talking to anyone, all right? And this was enforced togetherness, right? Enforced storytelling, in a way. On the phone, she was even like, are you sure? <laughs> you don't want just the hour on the phone? This is a private home with people. And I was like, no, that's what I want, okay. So, a few days later, I drive to Venice, and I pull up to this house, and I go inside, and a woman welcomes me. She seems like a middle school nurse. She's just so charming and nice, and she takes me to the kitchen where there's all these snacks like carrot sticks and Cheetos, and they're all in those paper plates like with the fluted edges. Do you know what I mean? She has hot cocoa packets on and hot water if you want to make yourself a hot cocoa with like the marshmallows that become real marshmallows once they hit water. <laughs> And then another woman comes up and she has like long ponytails, which adults with ponytails, question mark, it's fine. Um, she comes up to me and she's wearing like loose yoga pants. She's got really beautiful high cheekbones. She's totally the LA woman that was an actress in the 80s but had some shit happen. And now she just makes granola at home and saves dogs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, and she like welcomed me and was so kind. And then they took me to the living room where the woman who was clearly the therapist was. She had blown out hair. She was wearing like an amethyst necklace. You know the amethyst with like ants trapped in it <laughs> kind of like necklace 
She was there. She was like she was like the therapist from an Alan Ball show. Like I was waiting for someone from Six Feet Under to come out. She was just so clearly, hi, David, just gauzy sort of diaphanous fabric. I was immediately like, I love you. Um, and I sat down, and there was just the four of us. And then as they started to talk, I realized they all knew each other. And I was like, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, we all know each other. We've been doing this every two weeks for 10 years. And now that you're here, I guess no one else is coming. Let's begin. (laughs) Okay, this is going to be fascinating. Um, Now I should also tell you that the only other beings in the room were, do you know those collapsible baby pins that you can take and put your kids in? There were four of those spread out this giant living room and they were each full of about five senior under two pound chihuahuas. uh, About three or four of which were wearing dresses. So... Uh, we began our process for about 20 minutes. They're talking about their dogs and experiencing... They're talking about, like, reflecting on their own experiences. I'm like, this is the worst mistake. Like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what is happening right now. This is, like, the weirdest thing. And then finally, like, the head therapist turns to me and she's like, well, do you want to tell your story? And boy, did I. Something broke inside. I remember I started wailing. I talked about, like, Charlie and how much he meant to me. I talked about, like, the debt and my heartbreak and how, like, I imagined him at night. And then I went, and then I went on this other tangent. I started talking about, like, my father and I don't talk anymore. And I feel like I lost a job I really cared about. And why am I living in love? Like, I went fucking nuts like and I kind of had a white out do you know what I mean it's not a blackout like you're active but like who knows what's fucking happening who knows what you're saying out of your mouth hole and I am saying everything and I'm crying so hard and it was such a crazy white out that I remember at one point coming back and realizing that I had in a little lavender dress one of those chihuahuas and she was looking at me you know they have those weird milk eyes like they can't see anymore and when chihuahuas are old they lose all their bottom teeth so it looks like they have literally no lower jaw it's just kind of like milk eyes and desperation in this lavender skirt and I don't know how she got in my lap I don't know one of the women was like he needs a doll grab one like I was so fucking freaked out I don't know how it came to me right and finally I finish talking about all of this and I immediately apologize and she's like don't apologize don't apologize and I tell her I remember I said I want to apologize because I feel like I can't express this to anyone because it's just a dog and she said look this is something I deal with all the time like when you lose a human in your life you get to commune with people that knew them and remember how great Heather was or Peter when you lose a dog it's a one-on-one relationship maybe one on two a family it's very private and painful because you can't talk about it and I want to tell you about a thing that I do that might be helpful for you in remembering Charlie and keeping him alive she said I've had many dogs but there are ones that hurt more that are like your spirit dog and four years ago I lost a dog named Genevieve and I do this thing where once a day I do something in my mind, I do it for her. Sometimes it's holding a door for someone, sometimes it's buying someone an extravagant $100 present, but I tell myself once a day, this is for Genevieve. And as she tells me that, it like really settles with me and I start crying again, but in a less hysterical whiteout way, you know, I'm just like crying, I'm like, thank you, thank you. And as I'm sort of rebounding from this, I hear one of them be like, yeah, it's hard. Remember when I lost, you know, Dot? You know, I only knew that she was still around because of the lights in the basement going on and off. I say, oh, and I'm sort of still sort of checking in for my emotional devastation. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's funny she said that. And the other one says, well, remember, she was turning the washing machine on and off for like the first week. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking around and I can tell the blown out, uh, fabulous amethyst therapist, it can tell that I'm like, <laughs> and she looks at me and she's like, oh, well, yeah, that's how animal spirits come back to us. Electricity is the conduit for them. And I'm like, okay. Um, 
And then I'm trying to process this and I'm gripping my little blind dog in the dress a little bit tighter. And then the other one starts talking about, well, my daughter, my daughter. And, and I interrupt. I'm like, that's so sweet. I never called Charlie like my son or like my fur baby or anything. And she's like, oh, no, no. I mean, she was my daughter 125 years ago. This was in Eastern Europe. I was a servant. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, even the dog is like up at me like, oh, it's fucked up. You came here. And it just with like the milk eyes, right? And I completely left my body. I don't know what they talked about because it was that thing where you're so out of place. You're just like, mm-hmm, <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I love, no, of course, yeah. It was a feudal system, like whatever, right? Like we were, I was just fucking like whatever is happening. And finally we got to this point where like it was the end of the night. I gave them back the little dog. I hugged them goodbye. I was like, thank you so much. And I got in my car and I just drove home and I drove home with intensity, right? Like, I, I, I wasn't scared of what it was, but it was not what I needed in some way. And I got home that night and I, I laid in bed and my husband wasn't home from work. And I remember laying in bed and I was like, wow, that was a crazy experience. And I'm almost asleep when all of a sudden the sound machine in this person's apartment we're staying in comes to life. It fills the room with blue light and it just goes, it like comes on full blast and I sit up and I clutch the comforter and I'm like, Charlie? <laughs> and I, I look at myself in this space that I don't have because I'm literally homeless right now and I look out the window at the big blue building, the symbol of one of the biggest cults in the whole world <laughs> and I realize that I'm thinking that maybe my little dead Jack Russell Chihuahua I love so much is coming to me through a sound machine. And I realize that that's probably not true. And I start crying, and I fall asleep. And the next morning I get up, and I'm walking down the street. And I'm walking, and I'm walking by the Big Blue Scientology building when I get this Facebook update. And it is like a donation thing someone's sharing, because this storyteller that I don't really know, I only met once, he's very young, he's only 23, he's gotten diagnosed with like stage four cancer, he has no money, and he just needs people to help him. And trust me, I am in major debt, but I'm like, I'm gonna send $5 to this guy. So I send $5, and I go to press send, and at the end it asks you to put your name. And I put David Crabb, and then I stop, and I delete, 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 and I put Charlie Wipaw. And I'm about to press send when I realize this goes to Facebook. Everyone I know will be like, David is donating to Living Humans Cancer Funds in the name of his dead dog. (laughs) Now, I don't know if metaphysics stuff is true. I don't know if Shirley MacLaine ever really astral projected or if it will help. I don't think that Xenu is waiting to rid me of my phaetons. And I'm pretty sure that the dog I love so much doesn't still exist in the circuitry of my toaster oven. But I do know that when I left his name in there and pressed send, I felt more like he was with me than I ever had up to that point. Thank you. Oh, how great would it be just to have something to do. I sit down in the living room with these three women. So David, tell us what you've been going through. Five elderly chihuahuas wearing dresses. Freaking the fuck out. Are we really talking about the ghost of our dead dogs coming like to us through home electronics? Is that like a thing that's like happening right now?
How's everyone doing tonight? Okay, so I had a hard time fitting in at school in the Bronx in the early 90s. It was predominantly black and Hispanic, and I was the only Chinese kid there. Kids always made fun of me, not because of the color of my skin, it's clothes I wore. Crew neck sweaters and beige corduroy pants from The Gap. <laughs> at that time, all the kids were into like baggy-ass jeans and oversized t-shirts, and it was really awkward, and every day I just felt like shit. When I'm feeling like shit, I always talk to my older sister, Debbie. Growing up, Debbie was not just my sister, she was like my therapist, and she always got me closer in The Gap, because she worked there for many years. <laughs> so one afternoon, I was like, Debbie, where can I find like cool clothing for myself other than Gap? Because that family discount is not doing me any justice. <laughs> And she told me about this place called the Unique Warehouse in the village. And the Unique Warehouse is a department store that sells vintage clothing. And one afternoon, she took me there. And I remember the place was just covered in graffiti. It smelled like bohemian body oil and burnt pretzels. And they're playing house and hip-hop music. And I see this Hispanic kid walking around the store, and he looks mad dope. With his polo crew neck sweatshirt, these baggy-ass blue jeans, and his Air Force Ones. Homeboy was crushing it, especially with that bleached-out crew-cut hairstyle. He looked like Eminem before he became the real Slim Shady. And I stood there, and I just stared at him. I said, wow, I want to be just like him. The next day at school, I'm walking through the halls with my new outfit from the Unique Warehouse, these light blue baggy-ass jeans, my oversized white T-shirt that says Philly's Blunt across it, and my white-on-white Air Force One knockoffs from Chinatown. <laughs> Looking like a homeless astronaut. <laughs> and this kid, Jamal, walks by me. He's like, yo, that shit is mad. Ew, where you get that? And I look at him like a deer in headlights. And I'm like, uh, the unique warehouse? And he's like, word. And he walks away. And I felt good that day. Because no one has ever complimented me on the clothes I wore at school. And I started to spend more time at the Unique Warehouse after school and on the weekends and spend my money on clothes. Because I craved the attention I got at school and I felt confident about myself. And every time at the Unique Warehouse, I always see that Hispanic kid walking around the store just looking mad dope wearing Nautica now. <laughs> and I really want to talk to him, but I don't want to sound like a chump. I want to come off intelligent. And I thought about Jamal and how he complimented me on my clothes the other day. And I take a deep breath and I walk up to him. I'm like, hey, yo, shit is mad. Ew, we get that. And he gives me a dirty look. And he's like, yo, I stole that shit. You got a fucking problem? And I'm like, word. And we became friends. His name is Josh, but everyone calls him Adobe. And Adobe introduced me to his friends. A lot older than me, they dress really cool, and they're not in school anymore. And I'm like, shit, why should I be in school if they're not? And I start spending all my time at the Unique Warehouse and kicking it with Adobe and his boys. One afternoon, we're all in the park, and Adobe rolls me up a cigarette, and he shoves it in my hand and says, yo, smoke that shit. And I'm like, yo, I got this. But deep inside, oh, don't got it. <laughs> because I'm scared of shit. 
I never smoked a cigarette before, and I'm assuming you got blow into it. So I keep blowing into it. It's really wet and soggy in my mouth. I feel like I'm chewing on a wad of toilet paper right now. They're all laughing, giggling at me. I feel like an ass. And Adobe rolls a new cigarette, and he says, yo, you need to inhale and exhale. And I took his advice and started coughing like an old man. <clears throat> like, what the hell is this shit? And he says, weed. And I'm like, weed, word? <laughs> Eventually, I got the hang of it. And during my last drug, I was like, that shit is mad ill. And they're all laughing, giggling, giving me high fives and pats on the back. I felt special, like I was part of family. Adobe and his boys took me under their wing, made sure I looked fresh every day, smelling like weed. And they invited me to go clubbing with them on Friday night. The only problem is, I'm only 14 years old. <laughs> and Adobe reaches deep in his pocket, and he pulls out a fake ID. And it says, Adobe, 25, New York University. And he's like, yo, I got your back. And that afternoon, we end up at a smoke shop, and I pay $5 for my first fake ID. In the photo, my head looks like a dirty Q-tip, my eyes are bloodshot red, and I have this earring in my ear that looks like a shower ring for a curtain. And it says, Dave, 25, Harvard Business School. Not because I'm Asian. All the NYU fake IDs that afternoon were on back order. It's Friday night. I'm getting ready to go clubbing. And mom and dad walks into my room. They said, Dave, can we talk to you? I said, what do you want? I'm ready to go clubbing. They're like, Dave, we found out you're not going to school anymore. You come home late smelling like weed. Now you have an attitude? It's because you're hanging out with that kid, Adobe. He's a bad influence on your life. And he's making you look like a thug. Like, mom and dad, that's bullshit. Fuck all of you. And they have this furious look in their face. And they said, Dave, you're grounded. You're never going out. And they storm out of my room. And my sister walks in. And she said, Dave, you are a disgrace to the family. After tonight, I don't have a brother anymore. And guess what? If you ever want clothes in the gap, you're going to have to pay full price like everyone else. <laughs> I'm fucking pissed off right now, and I'm nervous as shit. Because if I don't show up at the club, Adobe and his boys are going to think I'm a chump. And they're not going to hang out with me anymore. So this is what I do. I wait for everyone to go to sleep. And I take my sister's stuffed teddy bear and I shove it under the sheets of my bed to look like I'm sleeping. And I sneak out. At the club, I'm hanging out with Dobie and his boys, and it's quite a culture shock to see dudes dressed up as women making out with each other. There's people like dry humping each other on the dance floor. This guy dressed up in a spacesuit trying to sell me weed, ecstasy, and cocaine. I feel like I'm at a kinky slumber party right now held at an amusement park. And my 14-year-old head is about to explode. I just need a breath of fresh air. I walk out, and I see Adobe and his boys smoking a cigarette, and he invited me to go get a slice of pizza. And we cut through the projects. Walking through the projects in the middle of the night is not the safest thing. It's dark, smells like weed, and day-old piss. But they feel safe being around Adobe and his boys because they know the city more than me. And we're all laughing, giggling, and his friend screams, Watch your back! And he pushes me. So I push him back. And all of a sudden, I hear his other friend scream, Watch your back! And he shoves me. And I almost lose my balance. And I shove him back. I said, Fuck you, asshole. 
And Adobe screams, yo, chill. And I get hit in the back of the head. It felt like someone pegged me with a softball going 55 miles per hour. I feel the pain in the back of my head radiate through my body, and it feels like pins and needles just exploding through my veins as I slowly fall to the ground and everything fades to black. I immediately regain consciousness when I'm in fetal position, and they're punching and kicking me on the ground. I feel like I'm being pelted with bricks. Adrenaline's running through my body. I'm trying to scream, but no sounds are coming out of my mouth. I feel like I'm in a bad dream right now, but the reality is I'm going to die tonight. Suddenly, I hear a cop car driving by, and I hear the sirens getting louder and louder. And I hear all of them scream, 5-0, 5-0, let's jet! And they take off running with 50 bucks from my pocket. And I take off running the opposite direction for the train. On my way home, I stare at my reflection in the window of the subway car. I'm covered in dirt. My clothes are ripped. I feel the adrenaline wear off as the pain from my bruises radiate through my body. I'm scared, embarrassed, and I feel like a fucking chump because I got betrayed by people I looked up to. I get back home that night. I turn on lights in my bedroom, and the first thing I see is my sister's stuffed teddy bear sitting on my top of my bed, staring at me. That happened to be the scariest thing that happened to me tonight <laughs> because I'm going to hear about it in the morning. The next morning, mom and dad don't say a word to me. They make me breakfast and give me a box of bandages. My sister gives me a t-shirt and a pair of shorts from the Gap. <laughs> Regardless of all the fucking shit I put my parents and my sister through, they always had my back. I was just too stupid and selfish to understand. After that incident, I had no desire to hang out at the Unique Warehouse. And I should have never chose my friends based on the clothing they had on their back until one afternoon I'm at school, walking through the halls, my crew neck sweater, and beige corduroy pants for the gap. I see this white kid with a shaved head. He looks mad dope. With combat boots, camouflage cargos, and he has on this t-shirt that says agnostic front victim in pain across it. And I walk up to him. I say, hey, yo, that shit's mad ill. What's that all about? And he has this look of surprise. And he says, well, Agnostic Front is a punk hardcore band from New York City. And their first album was called Victim in Pain back in the early 80s. And I'm like, word. And we became friends. His name is Alex. And unlike Adobe, who was a fucking dick when I complimented him on his clothes, Alex actually made me a copy of Victim in Pain. And one of the songs is about unity and not being a follower like everyone else. And ironically, I started to shave my head, wear combat boots, camouflage cargo pants, and victim and pain t-shirts to school every day. Today, the Unique Warehouse is an NYU bookstore. And a club is a high-end condo somewhere in Tribeca. And although I never got accepted to Harvard Business School, I learned a really valuable lesson that evening that an MBA education would have never taught me. Fitting in is not about the clothes you have on your back. It's about being comfortable in your own skin and having people accept you for who you are. And that is great news, because the family discounts at The Gap are such a hard bargain to beat. <laughs>
this thing happens in adulthood, right? Where you only say you're going to make plans with friends. It's always this, oh, we should get together. Just over and over again until saying you're going to make plans like becomes the plans themselves. And I lived in my building for like about a little over a year. And ever since I moved in, my neighbors and I have been just in this endless feedback loop of plan making. And they're this fun couple whom I would love to get to know better. They live upstairs. And plans for drinks last August turned into, well, maybe we'll have dinner in September, which became this, well, let's try to go to a show in October. And that eventually became, well, it's the holidays, so why don't we just regroup in 2020? And that turned into, and January is just too stressful to get together. And that's, that's absolutely true. And I've never really felt like more of an adult than I did going through all that. And then like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, they texted and they asked if I was around and all this craziness was just starting and they wanted to check in. And so I went upstairs and I had dinner with them and it was so easy. We drank wine and we talked about comedy and about how they're from Austin and the places I know in Austin and and their dog, Penny, sat next to me. And she's just an absolute delight. And I felt like such a part of a community because things are, I don't know, they're, they're changing so drastically every day, right? But ever since I actually got together with my neighbors, I felt more at home than I have recently. And now my neighbors and I text every day. And while I can't easily see them with all the recent government mandates out there about socializing, it's just so settling to know that they're there right upstairs. And When all this is over, I'm certain that we're going to have those drinks and we're going to have that dinner and we're going to go to that show because I have to think that in times like this, these crazy uncertain times, what we need most is really just all around us. last week it was hard to decide what song to play so many wonderful beautiful songs and before bill withers we heard from brian kett 
who has started to do some teaching for us for the Story Studio and some coaching for us for Risk. Brian can be found at briankett.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-K-E-T-T.com. And he was doing a little anecdote there. We're asking for your anecdotes, three and a half minute stories or shorter, especially if they have something to do with things that have happened to you during this whole COVID situation, remember to focus on actual incidents, conversations you've actually had, or moments you've witnessed, or points in time where you could really feel like something was changing, or that you can recall exactly what happened. And yeah, if it's something that's happened within the past few weeks, fantastic. We want to hear it. And even if it isn't something that's happened within the past few weeks, we want your little anecdotes. Listen, if you go to the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group, I made a post about this. The group is on Facebook, and the post is from March 19th. But if you have any questions beyond that, even, you can just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. And that's also where you can email your recordings of your little anecdotes. We want to hear from you. Now, before Brian Kett, we heard a story from David Who, who you can find on Instagram at DaveWho718. That's D-A-V-E-H-U-718. We call that story Mad Dope, yo. (laughs) I love the way he tells that one. Before that, a little interstitial by Risk fan Todd Easton. We always invite our fans to send in audio interstitials for us. If you want to know how to do that, you can also email me at kevin at show.com. There's going to be another one based on that same story uh, by another fan of ours, J.J. Evans, later in the episode. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, in a little bit, we're going to do something we've never done before on the podcast. We are going to feature the final story that was shared at the last Risk live stream. Uh, That will be Felicia O'Hara, an unforgettable story she shared at the very end of our first risk live stream and of course our second one is friday april 10th at 7 p.m pacific time you go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets but before that we're gonna hear a little anecdote 
just like the ones that we want you to be sending in to us. This one comes from Mars Carnival, <laughs> a story we call Stocking Up. Look here, I am a single man, I live alone, and the governor announced that a statewide lockdown was coming soon, so I have to think about what is it going to take for me to be okay in here by myself for a reasonable amount of time, so I head out, alright, I get food, Got toilet paper before there was none to be found on the shelves. Got cleaning supplies, $20 worth of quarters for the coin-op laundry. My income is going to be okay. I'm set. All right. But a lockdown means nobody's coming over here and I'm not going over to anybody else's place. So I think, what else do I need? I reach for my jar of Albaline. Screw off the blue lid and see that it is almost empty. So I have to put my shoes on, get back in the car and drive to Rite Aid and get some Albaline. Now, what is Albaline? The jar says that it is a moisturizing cleanser. It's for removing makeup. But Albaline is also the perfect personal lubricant. It's similar to Vaseline, but not as stiff and not as hard to clean up. The glide of Albaline is so smooth and much nicer, lasts longer than baby oil, and is not as messy as baby oil. And Albaline doesn't get gummy like a silicon-based lube. Albaline is perfect. So I get to Rite Aid. There are two jars of Albaline on the shelf. I think about buying both, but at $13 a piece and one jar will last me a couple months, one is fine. I can leave the other one for somebody who really does need a moisturizing cleanser. So I get it. I'm driving home and thinking about the other thing that goes with Albaline, sativa edibles. With sativa, my body becomes an antenna. Sensations are so amplified and my dick is so hard and orgasms, they are so complete. Nothing is left. They feel triumphant. So I detour and I hit up a marijuana dispensary and there is a line. People are stocking up. And while I'm in the line, I'm thinking, what kind of person is thinking about his dick at a time like this? Then I realize what's predictable. I'm going to get sleepy. I'm going to get hungry. I'm going to get horny during this lockdown. I'm taking care of what it means to be a complete human being in this unpredictable situation. So I buy myself some sativa malted milk balls. I'm all set. 
And when I want that moment, that glide of the Albaline, that heightened sensation of the sativa edibles, and add in one of my sexton partners or a hairy pussy video on Pornhub, yeah, I'm going to be okay up in here by myself for a while. So, let the lockdown begin. Hey everybody, I know you're doing a great job staying the F home right now, but sometimes you do have to go out and shop. And when you do, I want you to remember this. Oh, please stay away from me in the grocery store. What are you getting so close to me for? Just be patient, wait for a while. Why are you coming down the aisle when I'm already in the aisle? I mean, seriously, why can't you wait until I get the pizza before you come down the aisle? Where the pizza is kept I'm mostly getting pizza Why do you have to push your shopping cart right next to me? You're getting too close, what part of six feet away don't you care? So please stay Stay away from me Okay, so, um, gosh, I know that these weeks have been crazy, but this is actually not the first time in my life that I have had to obsessively wash my hands 20 times a day or go from, you know, night pajamas to day pajamas or be, you know, accustomed to people wearing gloves and masks around me. Um, I had um, like a little bit of a sneak preview of this back in 2015 when my three-year-old daughter was suddenly diagnosed with leukemia. And with that came like the same sense of fear and disruption and disappointment um, because this had happened at the beginning of what was a very promising summer um, because I was just getting happily divorced and I was loving just being a single parent. I loved having my own time with my kids and uh, we were co-parenting. So I was also during, you know, my parent free time, I had just started dating for really the first time in my adult life. And I had met my ex-husband, you know, in college and that was before the internet even existed. So, you know, here I was like suddenly right and left swiping and, you know, I was making dates on Tinder and I was making cupcakes, you know, inspired by Pinterest all at the same time, and I was just loving life. I'm also a teacher, so I was looking forward to summer vacation, which was just, you know, a week away. And then in, in June, um, right after my daughter's third birthday, it, she tested positive for strep throat. She wasn't feeling well. And then, uh, you know, three days of antibiotics later, uh, she was slumped over in her stroller, she was sleeping all the time, and her fever was still 103. 
So on a Saturday, I took her to the ER, and by Monday, we were admitted to NYU's pediatric ICU. She was diagnosed with leukemia, and she was receiving um, her first dose of chemotherapy through her spine. And chemo means that she was going to soon be immunocompromised, so we would be living in the hospital. So, you know, just a few months after having my first own apartment and, you know, this new life, I'm suddenly sharing a 20 by 20, essentially medically equipped dorm room with my ex-husband, my sick kid, and an entire pediatric staff. Uh, so, you know, we, we took turns, my ex and I, sleeping on a pleather recliner next to Lena's hospital bed. And then we also had to take turns in Brooklyn for half the week because our older kid was here. Um, so we didn't actually have to see each other much, which was good. Um, but I did have to turn off my dating apps because, um, you know, I was getting notifications that some doctors and a very attractive anesthesiologist were just less than 0.1 mile away because they were down the hall. So uh, I shut it all down. I turned it off because my status had changed from single to cancer mom. And, you know, people had a lot of judgments about that, like whether or not I, I should date while all of this was going on. Um, so I didn't. Um, I leaped into that, that cancer mom role and I, I, I did it pretty well at first. But honestly, like it was with just the incredible hospital staff, um, you know, the nurses, the patient care technicians that really made it manageable for us and really made it magical for Lena. Um, you know, the, the child life specialist and the music specialist, they would walk around with ukuleles and wave magic wands at Lena. Um, they would get Lena any Disney DVD that she wanted. And this was before streaming and Disney Plus, so that, that wasn't as easy then. Um, and I think for Lena that for her, she felt like a princess that was just waiting for the spell to be broken. The magic, the pretending, that was all for Lena because I went into survival mode. So, you know, like for me, I was just going to be practical. And, and I would see parents praying in the hospital chapel. And I knew that a normal response to trauma was to like bargain with higher powers. But I just would not let myself think things like, you know, please just make Lena better and I'll be a better person and, and I'll stop drinking and like, no, like I wasn't gonna do that. I drilled it into my mind that if we just listened to the doctors and we did what they said, then Lena was gonna be okay. And you know, she did, she was starting to get better. So I was not gonna subscribe to any magical or spiritual thinking. That was until the Cubs baseball team started winning, the Chicago Cubs started winning baseball games. Um, so, you know, I'm from Chicago, so like I could accept that we had missed beach season and we wouldn't be starting the new school year because of this. But, you know, there was something about, you know, the Cubs starting to win that just made me feel like I was being left out and the world was like going on without us. Um, and, I, and I suddenly felt very trapped in, in this hospital in New York. You know, and I'm not even a big baseball fan. My dad was a big baseball fan and he grew up near Wrigley Field. So um, 
I, he did. He took me to games a couple times a year when I was growing up. And I wouldn't really pay attention to what was happening on the field, but he would get me like one of those like loaded Chicago style hot dogs, the ones that look like there's a salad on top of a bun. And I loved those. And my dad loved the Cubs. Like my entire childhood, he chanted, go Cubbies, go. So yeah, they, they continued to lose game after game, season after season. They hadn't won the series since like 1908. So for them in 2015 to be contenders, like, you know, I just, I wanted to be part of that fanfare. So um, I ended up ordering a bunch of Cubs t-shirts and I figured out where to get and how to make those Chicago style hot dogs. And eating those during the games like made me feel normal. So I started eating them during every game. And the Cubs started winning, so I kept eating. You know, by the time the Cubs were facing, of course, the New York Mets, right, for the National League Championship, uh, Lena was facing her most aggressive cycle of chemotherapy. Um, she had lost all of her curly head hair, and um, she even lost her eyelashes. And she just her fevers were always above a hundred because you know she had so many infections. So one might think that, given the situation, that I would you know be practical and forego my Chicago hot dog habit. But um, you know it, it was hard to even maintain in New York and harder in a hospital. But I just couldn't stop. And you know, like during my off hospital days, I would be combing the stores for poppy seed buns and sport peppers. I did. I I, I just I kept this going, and you know. I, I didn't want to tell anybody this, like I kept this a secret, but I started to actually think that if the Cubs could climb out of a cursed destiny, then so could Lena. And I thought that I had to eat these hot dogs religiously to ensure that outcome. So uh, on October 21st, the stakes were high for the Cubs. They had to beat the Mets that night or they would be swept out of the playoffs. Um, And the big game was on a Wednesday, so that was the day that I had to be at the hospital was on Wednesdays. So I prepared and packed up like the 10 or so ingredients for these hot dogs in Tupperware containers, in my thermal backpack, on the subway. I had sliced tomatoes and chopped onions and mustard and relish. And, you know, yes, of course, because Lena had cancer and we live in Brooklyn, um, these were, you know, uncured organic free-range turkey hot dogs from Whole Foods. Um, so so I, get, I get to the hospital and I'm like constructing these hot dogs, right, at the hospital because I found that, you know, crafting specialty hot dogs in the shared kitchen of a pediatrics unit, like this is just the right balance of crazy of both a cancer mom and a sports fan. And other parents are walking by and I'm like precisely arranging speared pickles. And then I am, you know, with flair, like finishing off these hot dogs with the celery salt, which by the way, is the secret ingredient to a Chicago style hot dog. (laughs) And, you know, they were there, it's game time. And I bring the tray of hot dogs into Lena's room 
And she says, not not hungry, mommy. She wasn't eating a lot then um, because of all of the infections. And uh, she continues to watch cartoons on her wall-mounted TV. And I turn the game on my TV. And then I'm eating over that, that tray that hovers over my recliner. And, you know, the night nurse just leaves. It's like about 8 p.m. And I hear that, like, the, the beeping of Lena's monitors, which is just like this harmony of dings that I'm used to at this point. But that night, what I also hear is the sound of baseball bats, you know, hitting the ball over and over and over again, you know, because like, and New Yorkers are cheering and, you know, not just on the TV, but also in the hallway because the hospital staff is watching the game at the nurse's station. So there's all these mocking cheers. And by the uh, fourth run in the first inning, I'm getting real anxious. Um, So I go over to Lena and I offer her like our usual routine, you know, a bedtime story and a song. And she says, no, mommy, I I just want to go to sleep. And she signals for me to close the curtain between us. And, uh, And I do. And then as soon as the game starts back up, she starts coughing, like really coughing. And and I rip the curtain back and she is sitting erect and she is heaving. And then she starts collapsing. So I'm trying to hold her up and I'm pressing that red button on the intercom at the same time. Um, And then like uh, her honey colored face, it's turning this gray green and the whites of her eyes are, are rising. And And I'm just afraid like the life is going to fall out of her, but no one is answering. So I let her go and I run into the hallway and I shout code blue, code blue. And sure enough, like a stampede of soft sneakers just charges into the room behind me. And then the room just fills with like green scrubs, purple scrubs, white coats, ID badges. And at this point, like most of the people at the hospital, I know like family, but there's so many people in the room that there's faces I've never seen before, including the lead doctor and a nurse that starts giving Lena CPR. And then one nurse who I know, she puts her hand on my shoulder and she whispers, cardiac arrest. And then they pull me away from the bed and then they pull the bed out of the wall and emergency equipment pops out, you know, like like the emergency equipment from a plane crashing. And uh, that includes the oxygen mask, which they put on Lena's face and also the electric pads. And with every jolt of electricity, her body just seems more and more lifeless. Um, And I can feel the hospital staff watching me, but I am watching this one nurse because she is watching the clock and she's got a clipboard and a pen. And I think, fuck, she's about to write down the time of death like it's a baseball score. And I see that the TVs are black. Um, The cords have been ripped out of the wall. And the tray that I was eating on, it lay sideways on the floor. My hot dogs are dismantled. And there is mustard and relish splayed on the wall. And I know that the Cubs are going to lose. And I realized, like, I hadn't thought, like, that this superstition had two sides. I was so focused on if they won, then Lena would be okay. But I hadn't thought about what would happen if they lose. So, to change the game, I do what any crazy cancer mom and sports fan does, right? I start screaming at her. I'm like, Lena, Lena, you stay with us. Lena, you do not leave. Lena, you stay with mommy. And uh, sure enough, with like that same mad mom coach energy, the doctor, he puts away the electric pads and he starts doing manual chest compressions until he says we've got a heartbeat. 
and then exhales and clapping. And I see her chest rising and falling, and I know that she's still in the game. And uh, as they are pushing her out of the room to take her to ICU, I'm like looking at the doctor because I don't know him, and I'm trying to make out his name on his ID badge. I can't see his name, but I do see that it is hanging on orange and royal blue Mets lanyard. So um, so I wait um, outside of the pediatric ICU for what feels like hours, and eventually he comes back out. And he says, like, we have to run a lot of tests, but she's alive, like, she's okay. And when he says she's alive, I realize, like, oh, like holy shit, like, for seconds, maybe she died. So I ask him, I say, did her heart stop? And he says, yes. And he looks at my Cubs t-shirt and, and I look at his Mets lanyard and, and then I ask, did the Cubs lose? <laughs> and he says, yes. With like the same sympathetic inflection as the death question. And we just start laughing, the two of us. And like the whole hospital is like looking at us. We're like cry laughing, sweat laughing. I think I might have hugged him because like it was the best laughter I had felt all season. Like it was such a relief. And so I said, thank you. Your team deserves the win. And uh, as many of you probably know, the Cubs recovered and they won the World Series the next year in 2016. And Lena also recovered. Um, she is no longer immunocompromised, thank goodness, and uh, is one of the most energetic and lively seven-year-olds I think that most people have met. My dad got to see um, the Cubs win in 2016 as well, and I think he's getting to see me here on Zoom tonight from Chicago. And uh, I, you know, until two weeks ago, I thought that this experience was a reminder like for me to like not participate in silly rituals and superstitions. But, um, you know, I'm telling this story on what was supposed to be the opening day of baseball season today. And I realize, of course, that this is a reminder that, you know, these rituals, uh, these games, these parades, these traditions, like no matter how silly, this is what connects us and what comforts us and what keeps us going. And we have to keep the rituals going. And thank you for letting me tell this story to keep this ritual going. Good night.
Take a deep breath, girl And meet me at the base station That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is Fountains of Wayne behind me now. Um, once again, someone who has passed, Adam Schlesinger, one of the singers and songwriters from the band. He passed last week uh, at the age of 52 from the virus. And before Fountains of Wayne, we heard from Felicia O'Hara. You might have noticed the different sound quality there. That's because her story was told at the very first Risk live stream. So what we do with that is we allow for the other storytellers, the other people who are present in the show, you can hear them responding sometimes to the storyteller in the spotlight so that you can hear that there is some response going on. We couldn't possibly include (laughs) the 500 people watching. That would be chaos. But uh, such a beautiful experience when she shared that. That is the kind of thing that you can see when you check out a Risk live stream. The next one is Friday, April 10th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And you can get your tickets at Risk show.com slash tour if you're a patron of ours at patreon check out our patron post to find out how you can get in there for free if you're a member of the press and you're interested in watching one of our live streams just email me at kevin at risk show.com and if you want to find felicia o'hara online look her up on instagram at ms.felicia underscore o'hara Before Felicia, we heard a song by Chris Grace and Marshall York. So wonderful to have those guys on the podcast after all these years. Marshall used to send us songs when Risk was brand new that we would feature on the show and once told a fabulous ghost story in one of our scary story episodes and chris grace is a friend from the people's improv theater that i used to be in you know way back in the day that song that they wrote is called stay away from me now don't forget all of the online learning opportunities that we make available oh my gosh i personally have had some astounding sessions recently You can go to kevinallison.com if you're interested in spending a half hour or an hour with me talking about a story you're working on or another artistic endeavor that you might be working on, like a podcast or a solo show or anything like that. Maybe a business presentation that you might have coming up. Some people just meet with me to talk about life, you know, uh, especially around the realms of sex and 
kink and BDSM and non-monogamy and all those sorts of issues. I've had some extraordinary meetings recently. You can find me at kevinallison.com. But also, there are our storytelling workshops where you can be meeting with other students online and story studio faculty members, the people who coach our risk storytellers how to prepare, 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 prepare <laughs> their stories for the podcast. You go to thestorystudio.org to look up our online workshops or our video workshops that you can take in your own time, uh, all sorts of opportunities, including corporate workshops. If you want to do a workshop to raise the morale of your team, to help people to get to know each other, to help people to like tell stories uh, that will better communicate what it is, the next phase of what you're going into, for goodness sakes, our corporate storytelling workshops that we make available at thestorystudio.org are amazing. So get on over there and check it out. Again, that's thestorystudio.org. Now, I want to see all of you on Friday, April 10th, 7 p.m. Pacific time at our live stream. Go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets. I will see you there, folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. The snow is coming down on our New England town, and it's been falling all day long. What else is new? What can I do? Let's sing this valley winter song I wrote for you. I go into this little house and I look down and there's a dog in a dress in my lap. I think I gargled and screamed. There was weeping. It was mucusy. It was like, like, like it was violent emotionally. I whited out. Like, I don't know what happened for part of it. I talked about my father and why did he reject me and how I miss New York and I don't know what family means anymore and what's going on with Donald Trump and what, where are we as Americans and why did I, why am I suffering? What am I, like, I literally, like, like just face break open and become a fucking maniac. Freaking the fuck out. And at one point I remember looking down and, like, the little milk-eyed dog in my lap was even looking at me like, this is fucked up, isn't it? Isn't it fucked up that you're here? And I'm like, am I really prepared to be that guy? And I think, yeah, I'm that fucking guy.